Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. I'm your host for our series this fall that focuses on today's debates and discussions in civil military relations. Civilian control of the military. This critical concept is considered one of the bedrock principles of civil military relations, a framework that is central to the U.S.'s democratic identity. Yet this notion that elected civilian leaders should have supremacy in the direction, shape, and execution of military affairs is, according to some, under threat. In 2018, the Congressional Convention on the National Defense Strategy expressed concern that, quote, the relationship between civilians and the military overall is currently unbalanced. As a result, civilian views on a variety of issues across DOD have been muted, unquote. Civil-military relations scholars Heidi Urban, Risa Brooks, and Jim Golby wrote in Foreign Affairs in 2021 that the problem is much broader than a single national defense strategy, arguing that, quote, over the last three decades, civilian control has quietly but steadily degraded, and senior military officers' influence has grown while oversight and accountability mechanisms have faltered, unquote. Others have still yet argued that the outsized military influence in policymaking has led to the militarization of U.S. foreign policy in ways that limit the ability of civilians to even participate in the process and could lead to unnecessary escalatory action that could take the country into war. Is civilian control of the military in jeopardy? And why do we find ourselves concerned about it today? How should we think about the role that military elites play in the policymaking process? How much is too much? And how much is not enough? Here to help us think through these questions is Colonel Todd Schmidt. Colonel Schmidt currently serves as the director of Army University Press at Army University and the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He is editor-in-chief of Military Review and executive producer of Army University Films. He's also a senior fellow at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, a research fellow with the Simon Center for the Professional Military Ethic at West Point, and an Association of the United States Army Leadership Fellow. He's a member of the Cosmos Club, a haven for fellowship, the arts, sciences, learning, and the sharing of ideas by scholars of action. Colonel Schmidt holds a Ph.D. from the University of Kansas with a focus on American politics and international relations. But most importantly for us, he is the author of Silent Coup of the Guardians, published in 2022 by University of Kansas Press, which examines the role of military elites in foreign policy decision making. Colonel Schmidt, welcome to the program. Thanks, Gary. It's good to be here. So I actually want to uh, start with a couple of personal questions here. Um, and, you know, you are an Army colonel, I guess, lieutenant colonel when you were going through and getting your Ph.D. Um, why would you go do this? Um, so why would why would someone who was a career officer in 
the U.S. Army choose to go get a Ph.D. at the University of Kansas and focus on American politics, of all things? Yeah, I uh, I asked myself that same question, I think, when I was in the thick of uh, my Ph.D. <laughs> studies. Why was I doing this? And I think it's a question I think all probably Ph.D. candidates ask themselves when they uh, finish their coursework and they have to do the research and writing that goes into the dissertation. Um, I think for me, a terminal degree was always kind of a bucket list thing. I always wanted to uh, earn a PhD. I've always been interested in political science, international relations, foreign policy analysis. So it was a natural decision, uh, you know, selfishly. I think uh, setting myself up for a post-Army job or career is something that I had been thinking about. Um, and I had um, also had the opportunity to realize a lot of my professional goals. So I had had the opportunity to command a battalion. Uh, as kind of a joke, the Army promoted me to the rank of Colonel on April 1st of 2018. <laughs> uh, and it was a real promotion. It wasn't an April Fool's joke. Um, so those were goals that I had achieved. Um, and my wife and I were looking at kind of what was going to come after Army. And I wanted a PhD to help me set that up. So why the focus on American politics? You know, this is traditionally a field that a lot of military officers choose to stay away from. They say, you know, oh, my God, like, I don't even want to touch the American political process. This is too controversial. Like, everything is so polarized. Um, this would not just be hard, but a, um, you know, difficult for me as a someone in uniform to do any kind of real research on. So why did you take on that challenge? So... While military officers may not be inclined to get a PhD in American politics, um, I do think it is a topic of conversation um, that we have very frequently, whether it's in um, throughout the schools that we attend. I'm sure it's a very big topic of conversation here at the Army War College. Um, but it's one thing to talk about it over a beer. It's another thing to really understand the dynamics, the definitions, the the facts, the theories um, that go into our American political system. And for me, you know, to have an engaging conversation, I need to understand some of the foundational things that go into, you know, what makes our system work. And that's, I think, really the motive of pursuing the PhD, plus the fact that I've always had engaging uh, scholars throughout, you know, my career, whether it was you know, as an undergrad at Indiana University or as a master's student at Georgetown, um, those professors, those scholars always piqued my interest and made me want to learn. Now, when you're this book, uh, Silent Coup of the Guardians, this comes out of your PhD dissertation, correct? Correct. Now, why write this dissertation? What's the motivation behind it and then, you know, turning it into into the book project? So I chose the topic, I think because I want to understand the nexus of decision-making between civilians and senior military officers. I'd had the opportunity to sit in the back of meetings when I was a young major in the Pentagon. Um, and I saw the interaction, I think, not at the highest levels, but at near the highest levels of major decisions that the Department of Defense was making. And it seemed to me that the civilians were continually deferring to the senior military officers as it related to the decisions that were going to be made. 
Uh, and I want to understand that, that handoff. Um, where, what were the power differentials? What was, what was allowing or what was causing this deference by the civilians in these closed door meetings, um, you know, in a secret compartmented information facility? Um, what was causing this deference of civilians to the military as it related to, you know, what boiled down to political decisions? Now, this comes at a particularly kind of important time. There was a lot of consternation about this concept of civilian control between 2018 and 2021. Um, you know, even before 2018, when the national defense strategy came out, but the Trump administration in particular raised a lot of questions about the degree to which there was civilian control, um, how how much oversight was happening. I think this starts with the appointment of um, then retired four-star General Jim Mattis to the position of Secretary of Defense, the appointment of many retired general officers into civilian positions of leadership in the administration, and the very slow pace of hiring that happened in the Defense Department of civilians into civilian appointed positions. And so a lot of people began to hem and haw about, oh, civilian control of the military, it's declining. You know, we have all these former military officers in these traditionally civilian positions. Um, and then we have this big debate about, well, what do we mean by civilian control at all, right? And it turns out there's a lot of variance in how we think about what what is this term and what is okay and what is not okay? So Andrew Radin and Thomas Sena in War on the Rocks in 2021 argued that, quote, by civilian control of the military, we mean that a specified politically accountable civilian authority has the final say on national security and defense policy. But in the Urban et al. piece that I mentioned in the introduction, they say that civilian control is actually the extent to which political leaders can realize that the goals uh, of the American people who elect that they elected them to accomplish. These are like wildly divergent understandings of what we mean by civilian control of the military. How do you think about it in your book when you're talking about sort of the role of civilians and military elites in policymaking? Yeah. You know, definitions aside, um, and I'll come back to that, but you know, you use the example of the Trump administration, which I think for the domain or for the study or the scholarship of civil military relations, it really was something that reignited, reinvigorated uh, the, you know, the scholarship. Yeah, there was an awakening. <laughs> there was. And I'm thankful for that because, I mean, the scholarship um, that has come out of it, I think, has been fantastic. Um, that aside... You know, when you think about civilian control, what what allows for it, what um, enables it, I think there's that component that there must be a politically accountable civilian authority uh, that is a final decision authority. There's that part of it. But below that, there's also, you know, there's a process. So if civilians control the process or military controls the process, uh, that can have a huge impact on how policy is formulated. The information and data that informs policy, where is that information and data coming from? Is it coming from the joint staff? Is it coming from the intelligence community? I would argue that the agency that provides the information that informs policy 
they're having significant control over public policy. So how does that scale. work? Well, I'll give you an example and then we can kind of dig into it if you like. Sure. So you, you brought up the appointment um, of General Mattis. General Mattis uh, was very close friends with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And this friendship caused Mattis, in my understanding from the interviews that I conducted uh, as a part of the book, caused the, the secretary to be very reliant on the chairman, which caused a great reliance on the joint staff. He was comfortable with his friend. He was comfortable with the joint staff. He was comfortable with the military community advising him. And because there was a, um, I don't recall how you described it, but the slow appointment of civilians uh, in the Trump administration overall, and particularly within um, the office of the secretary of defense staff, this super empowered the joint staff to inform the the uh, secretary's policy or national security policy. And if you're thinking in terms of like the National Security Council process, the joint staff was incredibly relied upon to inform that. Um, when you think about the fact that not only was Mattis appointed as the secretary of defense, but active duty Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster was also appointed as the national security advisor that provided tremendous control uh, by the military over the national security policy process. The process, the information that informed the process and the policies that came out, the options that came out of that process, so the, you know, the choices that the president got to make uh, were controlled. And I think that's a key component, whether it was the Trump administration or any administration. You can go to the Obama administration where President Obama says he felt boxed in. Right. Um, it was, he was boxed in because he was only given certain options and maybe he wanted options outside of those left and right limits that the military was setting for him, but controlling options. Uh, and then of course there's the implementation. So that's also an issue you mentioned, I think at the beginning, the securitization or militarization of American foreign policy. Um, if you have uh, a super empowered military that is implementing policy, it's that implementation, it's the uh, bureaucrat on the street, so to speak, that can control how that policy is implemented. Each and every one of those areas, pro process, information, options, and implementation, give the military exceptional influence and control over policy, regardless of the politically accountable or elected official that's at the top. Now, I want to dig into a little bit about this, because when we talk about it like this, it sounds malicious, right? It sounds like there's there's malicious intent to militarize policy and drag the United States into wars that the American people don't want to fight and things like this. But my understanding is that there's not a lot, there's not so much intent behind it, right? That um, what leads kind of an, an over-reliance on military advice, information, implementation options, et cetera. Um, how does this result in militarization? Because most people would argue that military leaders are probably the least likely to want to go to war. They might be the, the ones who are most aware of the costs of conflict and the costs of militarizing foreign policy. Right. So that's a really complex question. Um, and I think there are some major components to it that really need to be broken down. First, I think the American government, American taxpayers invest incredible resources in the discretionary federal spending or federal funding that goes into the Department of Defense. I mean, if you think about the fact that 
what is, are we up to $800 billion now maybe? I think we're over $800 billion, yeah. Um, in defense spending. Taxpayers want to return on that investment. Uh, <laughs> and it allows for or maybe leads to um, a lot of issues that wouldn't traditionally be labeled as national security policy issues. But when you think about childhood obesity, oh my gosh, that's a national security issue. Um, there's lots of different areas that have become securitized, if you will, or become uh, labeled as national security policy issues because, for one, pol politicians would like to see their legislation passed. And if you label something as a national security issue, maybe it has a better chance of uh, success in the legislative process. Uh, I mentioned the fact that taxpayers want to return on their investment. And so the military is a can-do sort of organization that I think, you know, Presidents, if you look at, for example, COVID uh, and the response to COVID, uh, both President Trump and President Biden relied on the military to help respond nationally because of the manpower resources, the logistics uh, capabilities of the military. It's just an incredibly um, fast acting, efficient, and I know that probably sounds um, when you think about bureaucracies or the military, you might not always think of efficiency, but it, in relationship to other institutions, it's a pretty efficient organization. Everything is relative. Defense travel system is, you know, inefficient until I go to the State Department system and try to travel with them. Right. So, and you bring up the State Department, right? So if you look at the State Department and we talk about, you know, we mentioned earlier the um, manning of the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, staff and how slow that was in terms of uh, political appointees being able to make it through uh, the Senate, it's even worse in the State Department. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of the State Department, you know, and the decline of the State Department from the 1970s to the present, um, what you end up having is institutions that really in the policy process aren't as competitive in helping a president achieve their goals and objectives um, and it becomes this over-reliance on the military tool. So what are your big takeaways then from the book? What do you find? You conducted over 100 interviews with national security professionals, military leaders across the enterprise. Uh, what were your big takeaways on the state of kind of foreign policy decision-making today? So the book really focuses on what is called epistemic community theory. And in essence, what I try to demonstrate is I, I make the assumption that the military is, is exceptionally influential in the policy process, but why? Why are they influential? And so I try to operationalize, and I, maybe I don't do a good job of it, but I try to operationalize what influence means um, because it's a very um, hard term to define and to measure. Um, but if you uh, look at, for instance, the national security strategy, and I mentioned uh, discretionary federal spending as measures of potential measures of how the military's influence is operationalized, I kind of explore that. But I really outline the conceptual attributes that make the military so influential or military elites so influential in the policy process. That's one thing I think that the book really focuses on and kind of highlights is why, if we assume that military elites are influential actors in the policy process. Why are they that way? And so I describe those uh, conceptual attributes and uh, kind of 
reinforce my proposition that military elites compose an epistemic community. What do you mean by an epistemic community? Like, what's the definition of that? Um, that's kind of that was a new term for me when I went through your book. Yeah. So an epistemic community is think of it as a group of experts. Think of it like I'll use it in a different example than the mili- than military elites. Climate change scientists. Um, climate change scientists have had extraordinary influence over international policy as it relates to climate change, whether it's at the UN, whether it's informing uh, governments around the world about what kind of policies they should have as it relates to climate change. Climate change scientists have uh, been found to be an epistemic community or a group of experts that have almost jurisdictional uh, influence over a policy domain. It could be climate change, it could be national security policy, it could be diplomacy. Um, there, there are lots of different potential epistemic communities that influence uh, different policy areas in politics. Gun control is another example, right? Um, why does it matter that they behave as this kind of expert community? So what, what, how does that then contribute to their kind of influence in defense policy? So when you have a super empowered uh, group of experts that is, I, and as I argue in the book, is heavily relied upon and heavily embedded across the federal government, right? For instance, during, and I could only find this in, uh, during Secretary Rumsfeld's um, time as secretary, but I don't think that it's changed much because I know it's still a point of concern, I think, for some military leaders. And that is we have over 2,000 military officers uh, and non-commissioned officers and warrant officers that are assigned throughout the interagency. Mm-hmm. Uh, they work in individual members of Congress offices. They work on committees. They inform legislation. They help write legislation. Uh, and that's just within Congress. And then you look at the federal government and all the institutions that military officers serve in, whether it's uh, the Department of State, uh, Department of Commerce, Department of Treasury, Department of Justice. Um, The military is embedded and relied upon in all of these organizations and up and down through the Department of Defense. That provides them significant influence over uh, policy options, policy formulation, policy implementation. We even see this at the War College, actually. We bring about 10% of our class in any given year is civilians from the interagency and from the Department of the Army who we bring in and educate at the War College. That must have an effect as well in kind of shaping their decision-making and their understanding of military affairs and kind of the different instruments of power, no? Oh, I think it does. Um, And I think that's one of the things that I write about in the conclusion of the book as a recommendation is that we need to, um, I believe... You know, this is Schmidt's opinion, um, but we need to improve our investment in other institutions of the federal government because when it comes to planning, right, just the planning, the military has an incredibly embedded planning culture. We plan for everything. Uh, we over plan. We plan multiple options. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about how much planning the military does, but it's part of our culture. That's not the same in other institutions. Um other institutions may be more reactionary. They may want to wait for a problem to surface before they actually want to assess it, talk about it, discuss it, think about it, come back and talk about it some more, and then decide 
maybe this is what we should do, or maybe not. Let's talk to some other outside experts. Bottom line is there is, in my opinion, a strategic planning vacuum uh, in our other agencies of the federal government. I would say the State Department, there's a lot of retired ambassadors who would support my argument that Uh there's not a lot of uh, focus on um, just even in the professional development education of foreign service or diplomatic professionals. Um, they don't have that same professional education from cradle to grave that the military does that reinforces throughout the career the importance of planning, the importance of uh, course of action development, mission analysis. If we had that same capacity, and it doesn't have to be a military format, but if we had that same capacity in other governmental institutions, you might see there be more competitive policy debate at the highest levels Uh, for instance, in the National Security Council. You mentioned earlier on in the conversation this concept of civilian deference, that when presented with military opinion, civilians will not use their own expertise or not try to overrule the military, but instead defer to military advice or this planning process, et cetera. Do you think that kind of this this planning culture and preparation that the military, military leaders do before they walk into meetings and, you know, this kind of... Um, this mode of preparation encourages this kind of civilian deference? It may, and I'll, I'll qualify that statement here in a second. But, you know, when General Dumford, who I kind of mentioned prior as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under um, Secretary Mattis, when General Dumford would go in to speak uh, or engage in the National Security Council, his team would do what they called overprepared squared. They wanted to make sure that he knew every option, he knew the history of different things that may be raised. Um, he he went into meetings in, in exceptionally prepared to engage on many different levels uh, when there were policy, policy decisions or policy options being proposed to the president. Now, in terms of deference, there are obviously exceptions to deference to the military. Um, I think when you have seasoned uh, public servants like, you know, Secretary Gates or Secretary Condoleezza Rice or others, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum, when they have incredible experiences, those folks did, that helps balance out, I think, military influence. There's also um, something that I think balances military influence, and that is, you know, when policy issues, national security policy issues have a domestic political component, the domestic political component will always win over whatever the military is advising because, you know, as Mayhew talks about, you know, the electoral connection, um, at the end of the day, uh, political leaders want to stay in power and they want to get reelected. And so if there's a domestic political component to a policy, that's that will tend to override military advice. Right. And as Alice Hunt Friend argues politics is the expertise of civilians. And so when you are dealing with the political issues, you can expect that the expertise lies with those civilian elected leaders who know what their constituents want and need and have at least some idea of, you know, what it means to be politically savvy and navigate those issues. Um, How did we get here? 
So, you know, you make the argument that the military is exceptionally influential. This is in direct contrast with what Sam Huntington worried about in his 1957 book, In the Soldier in the State, where he is concerned that military advice and military leaders are going to get drowned out in the the liberal debate of American society and over-reliance and over-focus on domestic politics and all of these kinds of things. Um, so we seem to be in the opposite realm here, um, a little bit inverted, where military advice and military leaders are over-relied upon for their perspectives, advice, implementation, choices, etc. Um, how did we get to this place? I have a lot of opinions on this. Um, Let's hear them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think at its foundation, I think our civil education um, you know, when I was coming up through grade school, we had, we would get a grade in, uh, you know, civics, um, you know, where we'd be good, were we good citizens? Was I being, what was my citizenship grade? Now I didn't do very well in my citizenship grade in <laughs> elementary school. So you school. joined the army. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's a lot of it has to do with civic education. And I don't know that we're where we need to be with our investments in civic education um, as it relates to kind of K through 12. This is Todd Schmidt's opinion. I also think it has to do with how we invest across our federal institutions. You know, we talked a little bit about the $800 billion that we uh, spend on the military or in within the Department of Defense as part of our you know, discretionary federal spending. I think some of that, and I, you know, Secretary Gates, I think, um, alluded to this when he was serving um, as secretary that some of the money that's being invested in the Department of Defense should probably be invested in some of the other tools of uh, national power. Uh, in the State Department, for example, there's a lot that can be done with other tools of national power other than just relying on the military. But because we invest so much, uh, we expect so much in return. I think you see it again, you know, whether it's, you know, on the main streets of small town America where, you know, Americans are bedazzled by the stars or medals that military uh, folks wear on their uniforms and the thank you for your service, social desirability of wanting to thank the military, which, you know, we appreciate, um, we're grateful for, um, but you see it all the way up, you know, and that gets ingrained. Uh, and I think we see it all the way up at the highest levels of government where there's this deference that we need to be careful of. And I think it needs to be balanced by civic education. I also think, also think it needs to be balanced by how we invest in our federal institutions. What does a healthy balance look like at the elite level? Well, one thing I think that we need to think about, uh, and when I say we, I mean Americans in general, is who do we select and elect to serve? Um, you know, Schmidt's opinion is that we're not doing our very best in how we select and elect who serves, uh, whether it's in Congress or sometimes even at the highest levels in the office of the president. And we need to look at who our political appointees are. Um, you know, as presidents want to control more and more of, you know, how the federal bureaucracy implements their policy initiatives or their political agenda, they want to get deeper and deeper into what 
is called the administrative, um, the administrative leadership aspect of federal institutions. It's a presidential theory, administrative control. But at the end of the day, um, who we elect matters. Uh, the experience of the people that we appoint to serve in senior positions matters. And if we're just picking people or appointing people that are just political allies that we trust and not fundamental experts in their field, I think that's an issue. I want to ask, as we as we start to wrap up, um, two, two final questions, one of which might be a little bit unfair. Um, Risa Brooks has argued in the past that the real problem with strategic decision making today is not necessarily that the military elites have outsized influence, although she was an author on a co-author on the foreign affairs article I referenced earlier, but that the real threat to civilian control of the military is actually that the military doesn't engage in politics and that the military doesn't think about the politics of its decision-making and it is sort of anathema to uh, military leaders' kind of willingness to engage on political second and third order consequences of um, their kind of the choices that they offer and the planning that they come up with. Do you agree with that? Well, First of all, I think Risa is an incredible scholar and kind of an academic hero of mine. Yeah, no, Risa, if you're out there, right? You know, we love you. Um, she's going to be on this podcast here in a, in and a couple visiting, of weeks. And uh, visiting. She's visiting Fort Leavenworth in uh, January. <laughs> she makes the rounds. We love her. Um, so, I think there's there's some nuance to that, right? I don't think it's black and white. I think you have to be careful what you ask for when you have a politically astute general. Uh, whether it's a Colin Powell as an example, or maybe a General David Petraeus, very politically astute, who understand, who do understand second, third, fourth order effects, um, you know that can also tip the balance in in a different direction. And so, you know, Abrahamson, and I can't think of his first name, and I can't remember the title of the book, and I have to look it up in in the uh, resources of my book, but. Abrahamson argues that the more educated your officer corps is, the more politically astute they become mm -hmm. um, and the more politically involved they're inclined to be. This so, is true of most Americans and people, right? The higher your education level, the more politically aware you are. Correct. Plenty of studies use education level actually as a proxy for political awareness when they're thinking about um, elite cues and that kind of stuff. Right. And I think we want... Uh, I think a president wants, I think the National Command Authority deserves general officers, admirals that serve at that level, especially as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to understand military decisions in a domestic political context. That's incredibly important. In fact, that's what many of the elites I interviewed said. So whether they do or they don't, um, I'll leave that to the experts. I do think However, that we have to be careful what we ask for, um, and we have to understand that the more educated and professional that the mili that military elites become, the more politically involved they're more likely to be. So to wrap up, um, in Todd Schmidt's opinion, uh, and you had kind of one thing that you could do in order to get after this, this problem of sort of outsized military influence in the decision-making process. 
uh, and you have a magic wand, what's the one thing that you do? I shift investment into the other tools of national power and to the professional development, education, training of our diplomatic corps, uh, to our civil servants that work in, in the Department of Homeland Security and Treasury and, and, and Commerce, and across the, all the other federal agencies. I would want to reinvest um, in their professional development from cradle to grave, not just uh, an initiation or an orientation as they come into an organization, but throughout their career, uh, fill that gap, uh, develop, develop them, invest in them, because um, I think that's where you'll end up seeing over the long term a balance of influence over national security policy. This about ends our time here. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Colonel Schmidt, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil-military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening in to our series on modern civil-military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode, and then rate our podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can continue to have conversations just like this one and grow our community. So, until next time... From the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.